Coronavirus NZ, a stuff podcast. Oh, sorry. I, I didn't realise you weren't ready. Should we start recording again? No, no, that sniffle's on the record. I was, I was making a point. W- what point? That I have a sniffle and a cough. Listen. <coughs> Are you trying to suggest that at a time when there's zero community transmission in New Zealand and when you barely leave your bedroom podcast studio, you've managed to acquire a case of coronavirus? No, I think I may have what's known as viral rhinitis, a little touch of the acute nasopharyngitis, if you will, a a cold. But I'm still hoping for a little bit of sympathy. Oh, right. Anyway, hari mai, welcome. This is Coronavirus NZ for Thursday the 9th of July. I'm Adam Dudding. And I'm a non-infectious Eugene Bingham. Once a week we bring you the news and some of the quirky things you've noticed about this global pandemic and then we slow things down to focus on one particular topic. It's weird though, on this sniffing thing. I mean, I'm confident that the virus afflicting me today is a good old-fashioned cold virus, but these months on the podcast interviewing scientists about RNA and nucleocapsid proteins and lipid bilayers has made me far more conscious of all the microscopic weirdness that must be going on right now in my mucous membranes. I mean, as we speak, some of the cells in my nose are quite possibly exploding after being invaded by a virus, and my tiny sniffle and occasional sneeze, I don't really have a cough, actually, just sneezes. Something to do with inflammatory mediators and the DCHR3 receptor, whatever that may be. Thinking about COVID-19 all the time means I'm much more aware of what's going on under the hood when I blow my nose. So will you get a COVID test just to be safe? Hmm, I haven't really considered that. Let's see what the government's latest advice is on that. www.covid19.govt.nz Quote, if you have cold or flu symptoms, you should call your doctor, iwi health provider or healthline. They will let you know if you should go have a COVID-19 test. Sounds promising. Are you ready for a stick up your nose? Hang on. The website then says, at this stage, our greatest risk of COVID-19 is via the border. Well, I have indeed been on a Zoom call to China very recently, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that doesn't count. What else does it say? Uh... The highest priority for testing is to test people who are symptomatic, that's kind of me, and have been in contact with a confirmed or probable case, no. Travelled internationally in the past 14 days, as if. Had direct contact with a person who's travelled overseas, no. And a few other boxes that I don't tick. So, I reckon getting a test would be a waste of taxpayer money. And I've been working from home since my very first sneeze. I know you're worried about me, Eugene, but I, I think I'm going to be okay. Alrighty, but do try to mute your mic the next time you sneeze, will you? Alright. Actually, you should be grateful that you don't have bubonic plague. Well, that hardly seems likely. The Black Death was 670 years ago. Well, you say that, but have you heard about that shepherd in Inner Mongolia? He's just been diagnosed with bubonic plague. And so his city has put in place so-called plague prevention measures that will be enforced till the end of the year. He's in hospital and we're pretty good at treating it now, so apparently the shepherd's doing just fine. It's not just in Mongolia, by the way. Apparently there are about seven cases of bubonic plague in the US each year. Well, thank you, Mr. Random Effects. You are welcome. Actually, Inner Mongolia is technically part of China, isn't it? So perhaps we should have asked Anna Fifield about bubonic plague when we talked to her earlier. Yeah, but this is coronavirus NZ, not bubonic New Zealand. So we didn't. We did ask her a bunch of other more pertinent things, though. She's the Washington Post's Beijing bureau chief and a Kiwi, and she's got some great insights. That's coming up later. 
We've reached that stage of the pandemic where things are really fraying around the edges, aren't they? We're six months in, and sometimes it's hard to keep track of where we're up to, where things are going, and what the latest developments are. And to be honest, some of the latest developments are pretty tawdry, really. Yeah, I think that's the best construction you can put on what went down this week with New Zealand's COVID patient privacy leak. Just by the way, can we even call it a leak? I mean, a leak is something that drips out of a tap, but this is a case where someone has connected a hose to the tap, filled up a bucket, handed that bucket to someone else, then that person has handed the bucket to journalists. It's not a leak, it's a blatant privacy breach. Anyway, if you haven't been keeping up, a well-known political operative, Michelle Boak, who had been provided the names of 18 New Zealanders have tested positive after returning to the country, she decides it's a good idea to pass them on to an MP, Hamish Walker. Walker then provides that information to certain media because, he says, it proves an earlier press release of his wasn't racist. And by the way, it doesn't prove that. The journalists then write stories, but the headlines are, for instance, COVID-19 patients' details leaked. The National Party goes berserk, a QC is called in to investigate, Then the National Party goes quiet, and then it turns out that's because they've found out that the leaker is one of their own, and so is the original source. Oh boy. It's a shambles. Meanwhile, New Zealand's closed borders are kind of fraying around the edges too. We weathered the border bungle a few weeks back, but now, to properly deal with the huge influx of returning New Zealanders, the country's had to put up a sort of no-vacancies sign, basically, because there just aren't enough beds in managed isolation to cope. So this means Air New Zealand has had to stop taking bookings for inbound international flights, and when bookings resume, the company's going to have to do some cross-checking to ensure there are enough beds in the managed isolation and quarantine facilities to match the number of people arriving on their planes. Our colleague John Anthony has been writing about this for stuff, and interestingly, he heard from a Kiwi who's recently flown from New Zealand to Hong Kong. And there, they do it really quite differently from us. So there's no 14-day state-funded hotels there. Instead, on arrival, you get an electronic bracelet attached to your wrist. It's registered to an app that you have to download to your phone. And then you go off to be tested. And this is all before you're even allowed to leave the airport. So in this reader's case, he tested negative. So after a number of hours, he was allowed to leave but had to self-isolate for 14 days. Yeah, and some of the details are fascinating. At the start of the 14 days, you have to walk to all corners of your accommodation to build like a, a geofence for your GPS tracker so they'll know if you decide to take an illicit walk. As well as keeping an eye on your whereabouts with GPS, government officials also give you video calls over WhatsApp to check in and you're required to monitor your temperature during that period too. And then at the end of it, you throw away the wristband, delete the app, done. No costly hotel facilities. Yeah, it sounds pretty efficient and cost-effective too, but... Uh, is New Zealand really ready for a trust-based system like that? I mean, we've had two literal escapes from managed isolation in Auckland in the past week. One of them was that guy who leapt a fence and headed off to the supermarket. And he's since tested positive. So it's a really serious matter. And authorities went through security footage to see exactly where he went, what he touched and who he interacted with. He's been charged, which seems fair enough, to be honest. Here's what fascinates me, though. What did this restless Kiwi buy during his taste of freedom? Not pineapple lumps, not onion soup and reduced cream, not even flour. He basically spent a lot of time in the beauty aisle, and he ended up buying razors, shampoo and toothpaste from the self-checkout. At some point, he hooked into the free Wi-Fi and he made a 22-minute call. He took a bunch of selfies, and then he wandered back to the hotel. If convicted, he could go to jail or get a big fine, so it could turn out to be a very expensive shopping trip. So this afternoon, we've heard that from now on, there'll be a permanent police presence at all managed isolation and quarantine facilities. Overseas too, there's evidence that things are fraying around the edges. 
you know, there are several countries which had seemed to be out the other side, but are now sliding back into various stages of lockdown. So several regions of Spain have reintroduced restrictions on movement. Portugal and Germany have had setbacks. And the United States, well, where do you start? And then Australia. Yeah. Trans-Tasman bubble flight to Melbourne, anyone? Yikes. Yeah, the whole Melbourne metropolitan area has just gone back into lockdown for six weeks. Public gatherings are limited to two people. Just, is that even a public gathering? Restaurants and cafes can only do takeaways. It's a real step backwards. Basically, rates of infection are getting too high. And if they hadn't acted, there was a risk that contact tracing and suppressing the virus would become impossible. Our old friend, the R0 number strikes again, eh? It's also amazing to me that six months in, we still can't figure out some surprisingly basic stuff about COVID-19, like even agreeing on how the damn thing spreads. Just this week, you've got 239 scientists from 32 countries writing an open letter to the World Health Organization, asking them to acknowledge that actually COVID is being transmitted via the really tiny airborne droplets that are called aerosols, and especially indoors. So the WHO responded and said, Sure, we're going to update our guidelines to reflect that. But I don't quite get what's going on here. The, the WHO is super important in tackling COVID, but this isn't the first time that their guidelines and advice seem to be weeks behind the stuff that we've been reading in mainstream media about major scientific studies. I guess the point is that when the WHO changes a guideline, the impacts are huge. So they tend to be super conservative. In this case, if you accept aerosols are an important vector for infection... That means more mask wearing indoors, adding better filters to ventilation systems in schools and nursing homes and so on. It's a really big deal. Yeah, and I guess they're also balancing all the costs and benefits, including some political considerations at times. So, you know, they're playing three-dimensional chess, basically. Right, we've given up on Plague Playlists because they just didn't seem to be hitting the spot anymore. But for Eugene, at least, there is some musical joy on the horizon. Ooh, sounds good. What? Yeah, as you know, we can't expect visiting performers in New Zealand while the border's so tight, but it turns out that a bunch of Kiwi singers with backgrounds in the West End and Broadway and so on are putting together a kind of variety show featuring Broadway bangers. The press release just arrived in my inbox, so it's happening in September. It's called The Shows Must Go On. Good name. There are seven singers, and they're going to hit 23 New Zealand towns and cities with hits from shows like Phantom, Elay Mears, and Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. So, Eugene, you excited? Mm, you got a short memory, mate. Have a listen to this clip from our episode of April the 1st. Who doesn't love a musical? Me. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Okay, in our increasingly regular Famous People with Infection news, Jair Bolsonaro has got it. Yes, he's the president of Brazil, of course, a well-known COVID-19 sceptic who has downplayed the seriousness of the pandemic for months. No comment. Right, let's get to the main event. Today's interview is with Anna Fifield, who is the Washington Post's Beijing bureau chief. Her career began in New Zealand. In fact, we first met back in the early 1990s when we were both working in Rotorua before she headed overseas and spent 13 years at the London Financial Times. She started at Harvard before taking up a post for the Washington Post as the Tokyo bureau chief from 2014 to 2018. She sat a few months back in New Zealand and she's just returned to China and we called her at her apartment yesterday. Just as an aside, when I say we called her, you won't hear me in this conversation at all. There was a power cut just as we began recording. So, take it away, Adam. Hello, Anna. 
Kia ora, Adam. So you're back in China. I saw on Twitter that you very recently ended a 14-day hotel quarantine in Shanghai and we're heading on to Beijing. So where exactly are you right now? I am back in my apartment in Beijing uh, for the first time in four months. I left on a five-day trip to come to New Zealand in March, and it took me four months to get back. So I am very happy to be at home and sleeping in my own bed again. So tell us about quarantine for arrivals in China. Was it much different from what we've heard about New Zealand's hotel quarantine? You know, free food, boredom, lots of TV? (laughs) I mean, I had very low expectations coming into this. I had some friends who did hotel quarantine with kids uh, in March when it first started here, and they had a really horrific time. Um, So I arrived with low expectations and an entire suitcase full of twisties and uh, hummus and crackers and things to to get us through, my son and I, uh, for these two weeks. But in fact, everything went about as well as I could hope. Uh, It was super organized at the airport when we got off the plane. We were brought off in sections and there was a whole system where we had to go through and scan various codes and get various paperwork and have uh, a COVID test. So we were on a bus to our hotel within two hours of landing. It was the first Air New Zealand flight back to uh, Shanghai in months. And then the hotel room, I mean, they were really well set up. We were given a suite, which is nice because we were two people. The weird thing about it was that it had white plastic sheeting on the floor. (laughs) So, I mean, my experience of Chinese hotel rooms is that they never vacuum anyway, uh, but I guess they didn't want us dropping our potentially COVID-y germs or something on the floor. So we were put into this hotel room by people in hazmat suits, and we were given the option of having their three meals a day, uh, which would just be delivered as set, or, or to order off the hotel menu. And we did that because my son's picky and I'm a vegetarian and things. So um, so we did that and it, it was good. Was it free like in New Zealand? It was not free. Uh, we had to pay for it. So it was 400 quai a day, which is about 90 New Zealand dollars for the hotel room, which right. is very cheap for a big suite, corner suite overlooking the sea. I'm surely, you know, the government did a deal with the hotel to keep them in business, but it wasn't free. Uh, and we also paid for our meals. I mean, I expected that, you know, we chose to come back to China. So, yeah, I didn't have any quibbles. But, yeah, it's very different from the New Zealand and the Australian situation where it's free. I guess you're just settling back in now. But from what I can tell, life in China these days involves all sorts of apps and QR codes and health checks and so on. Can you give us a bit of a picture of day-to-day life for Chinese people now? Yeah, so everybody on their phone yeah, does have a QR code that is um, supposed to glow green to say that you can go. And this is based on your movements and where you've been. You have to like register with it first of all. So when I got back to my apartment complex where I live, you know, there's a little desk at the gate and I had to go and register and they loaded my details into the system, including the fact that I just had a negative COVID test. But for one week after being released from quarantine, my code is orange, so I can't go about freely. So yesterday I tried to go to the bank, uh, which is in a kind of shopping mall kind of building, Mm -hmm. and I had to show my code and they wouldn't let me in because my code wasn't green. And like some restaurants, yeah, malls, uh, government buildings, you have to show your code. Not all of them, but for most people. So in a week's time, my code will be green and I'll be free to go. But there is this sense of keeping track of people, and it's really 
really strict at the moment because a few weeks ago, Beijing had a second wave outbreak where all of a sudden there was this eruption of cases centered around a market, which of course, you know, wall sirens mm. blaring since it all began in a market. So in the past week, they've tested 11 million people for COVID in Beijing. Wow. Uh, it's incredible the kind of mobilization they can get going there. So they are still on alert, but as long as you've had your COVID test and you've got a green code, you, life is very normal. You know, there are people all around going about their daily business. Uh, you'd never know that anything really happened apart from the codes. Right. So, so technically, you're not in lockdown at all at the moment. This is just the new kind of normal and it's just been tweaked up a little bit because of that recent outbreak. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So within Beijing, it's all normal as long as you've got the green code. I think if you are leaving, then it's a little bit more difficult. So I've got some friends who are going on holiday tomorrow to the south of China. They all had to go and get COVID tests this week to show because they're coming from Beijing, which has had this outbreak. So the problem is not really Beijing. The problem is the other end where they're a bit skeptical about Beijing is right now. So there are still a lot of controls and sensitivities in place, but Apart from those things, you know, if you're going to work, going to the uh, supermarket, going to the park, things are pretty normal. Sure. Uh, I, should, I should just inform you at this point, Eugene was going to ask the next question, but he's had a power cut. And I believe, oh, yeah, no. so he's, he's, he's on the Zoom call, but he can't record himself. So I'm going to keep on asking questions. Okay. So China's where the pandemic started. And there's an almost overwhelmingly large number of angles to China's COVID-19 story. But let's start at the beginning. When did you start filing stories to the Washington Post about this new disease in Wuhan? The first week of January, uh, right after New Year, was when stories started emerging about this virus that was emerging in Wuhan. So we were kind of keeping an eye on it, but it wasn't clear how big it was, of course. So the first story that we wrote about this was January the 8th, mm. saying there's this like mystery virus that has emerged in Wuhan and people are keeping a close eye on it. And so then things started to pick up after that and it became clear that this was bigger um, and was potentially another SARS-type situation. But it really wasn't until January the 20th when the Zhongnanshan, the Ashley Bloomfield of China, right. <laughs> came out and said this is, you know, can be transmitted between people. That was when things really kicked off. It was a big game changer, that declaration, but also it was right before Chinese New Year, which is when literally 400 million people are on the road going to their hometowns for this big, this is the biggest holiday, like the Chinese equivalent of Christmas. So mass movement of people happening, which really made it so much more serious than it would have been at other, other times. And then so fast forwarding a bit, a couple of months ago after the Wuhan lockdown had ended, it was easy to get the impression that China had kind of nailed it and the virus was, you know, a story for the rest of the world. But then we've had these more recent flare-ups in China and quite large local lockdowns. So it's clearly not over yet. So big picture, where is China now in its battle against COVID-19? Uh, you know, 
the good thing about living in a <laughs> strongman communist one-party state is that, yes, if they decide to lock down, they can absolutely lock things down. And so in China is extremely sensitive about this. This is not just a public health issue, but it's a political issue mm. for the Communist Party, for their leadership in China, but especially in relations between the US and China. This is like kind of the new battlefield for this geopolitical power play that we're seeing going on. So yeah, you've seen Donald Trump standing up there repeatedly talking about Kung Flu and other, you know, really offensive racist names. Yeah, he's really pinning this on China. And so China very much wants to show that it's in control, that it's doing much better than the US. And, you know, they try to do that at the best of times to take advantage of Trump's, you know, bungled responses to things. They always take advantage of like race riots and things like that to present the US as a dangerous place. But boy, you know, the Trump administration is really helping them right now to present China as strong and coherent and in charge and the US as complete mayhem. Mm. So you get a lot of Chinese people, including, you know, academics, intellectuals, people who read outside information and things who are not particularly beholden to the government in China, who are saying, thank goodness I'm in China right now. Thank goodness we've got our system of government being in charge of this. This. Because, you know, when you look at the numbers, there's like 4,000 people in China died, which is obviously a terrible number, but a tiny fraction of the number of people who've died in the United States. So even without all the propaganda narrative around this, you know, China's approach has been very strong and they really got on top of it. There will be flare-ups, you know, until there is a vaccine in, in all countries, I think. We will see the potential for another outbreak in various places, but China got on top of this one in Beijing and now it's back under control again. As we speak now, are there no flare-ups that you're aware of or no sizable flare-ups? No. Um, each day, maybe there's like one case that they've found um, in a city of more than 20 million people. So right. generally, they've been able to trace it. But, you know, the fact that they could do 11 million COVID tests in a couple of weeks just shows, you know, how they can mobilize. They do have the systems in place. They can get on top of things really quickly. There will be flare-ups inevitably, but it's the same pretty much as in New Zealand and that almost all of, well, here, almost all in New Zealand, it's all. All of the cases are associated with the border. They are Chinese people who are returning from the United States, from the UK, from other places who are returning with COVID. And they go into quarantine centers like I did or a quarantine hotel and it's picked up and they're isolated and they don't leave until they are COVID free. So community transmission is not much of a problem here anymore. One small thing. Are wet markets still a thing in China? Yeah, well, the whole idea, like the term wet market is a bit misleading. It makes it sound mm -hmm. like it's kind of some exotic thing. You know, a supermarket is a wet market. A wet market is a place that sells perishable food. So vegetables, fruit, cheese, any of this kind of stuff is a wet market. So yes, wet markets definitely are a thing. And I'll be going to my local wet market, aka the kind of like vegetable stalls and things across the road today. But the real question was around the actual exotic things that are sold in some of these places. So they've outlawed 
wildlife being sold at the markets, the kind of animals that were associated with this outbreak, like, well, pangolins are illegal anyway uh, to be traded, they're endangered, but things, yes, like bats and civet cats and some of these, um, yeah, kind of grosser meats that were on sale in the Wuhan market, yes, that has been made illegal now. I mean, it's kind of inevitable that there will be some illicit trade in this, and especially in the south of the country where this kind of meat is more commonly eaten, Mm -hmm. but they've pretty much banned it at the moment and are trying to stop this. Sure. I was curious to know, actually, inside China, if you ask someone on the street where and how the pandemic started, what would they say? It's a good question and something I will be asking. I think a lot of people would say that it started in China. I mean, they will say that it started in Wuhan, they will know that much, but I think you would find quite a few people who would say the American military brought it here in October last year because there were these huge, like the military Olympics were held in Wuhan in October and like a hundred and something countries sent athletes, including New Zealand and including the United States. And this was a conspiracy theory that the government in China was propagating for a while there, suggesting, saying, you know, maybe the US unleashed this when they came here. And, you know, some people buy it. Some people say it. Also, people will say, you know, it started in Wuhan. It started in this market, this, you know, exotic animal market. And this is how it began. So I think there's not one single answer. But I do think, you know, China's narrative about this has really gained a lot of traction here, partly because, you know, we live inside this great firewall. You cannot access outside information. So, unless you have, you know, the special VPN software on your computer, as I do. But you cannot read the Washington Post, uh, any British newspaper, any American newspaper, CNN, BBC, everything is blocked here. So people's ability to get other information is really, really heavily constrained. So if people are listening to the Chinese narrative about how, you know, it's not clear where this virus came from, but China has, you know, got on top of it quickly, so much better than the United States, China is being this beneficent global power and sending masks and PPE to Europe and helping people and think this is the narrative and this really sticks with a lot of people. You've got me worried now. Is anyone listening to this call that we're doing now? Would you say you're effectively an American journalist, kind of? So you'd be a target of observation, surely? Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm sitting in my apartment. It's totally possible that somebody is listening to this. Uh, <laughs> if I was sitting in my office, which I'll be doing later today, then definitely someone would be listening to this. But this is just kind of the environment in which I live and work. And so I. I mean, I don't really think about it too much. I say what I need to say, what the truth is, and, you know, so be it. That, I mean, my job is to, to tell the truth, yeah. Early on, when the Chinese state was effectively covering up what was going on in Wuhan, a lot of the big revelations about COVID-19 came from foreign journalists, I guess because the state were, were stamping on critical reporting by local journalists, and then they've even expelled a pile of foreign journalists. So... How hard is it in that environment to get accurate information in China and report it? It's extremely difficult. And I mean, I've been in China for two years and it's become a lot more difficult even during that period. So, yeah, my colleague was expelled because he's American. um, So I am here now by myself in China. And so, you know, there were a whole bunch, like 16 American journalists expelled in March from New York Times, Wall Street Journal and Washington Post. And so there's now more resources to keep tabs on those of us who remain, which is scary Mm. in itself. But, um, you know, there's a lot of effort to control us, to obstruct 
impact us. Even, you know, when you go outside into the countryside, I expect to have encounters with the local police and almost always do and get run out of town in various places. But it's happening more and more in Beijing as well, where I have local plainclothes police stop me uh, interviewing, you know, run me out of a neighborhood I had happened before I came to New Zealand. So it's really difficult. But also people are just terrified. People know that the political control is now so strong. People are afraid to talk to foreign journalists, Mm -hmm. uh, whether they are ordinary people in the countryside or, you know, professors at universities and the kind of people we would go to in the past to talk to, to get a Chinese perspective on what is happening, you know, a Chinese academic's point of view on the trade war with the United States or any of this stuff. People would talk, they would analyze in the way the professors everywhere do. And now increasingly, they're afraid to do that. So it's a big challenge to be in China and have Chinese people who don't want to talk to us. You know, I can't write stories just quoting foreign experts and things. So yeah, it gets more and more difficult. But I mean, a lot of what we know about what happened in Wuhan and everything that we know about what has been happening to Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang over the past few years comes from foreign reporters who are able to go out and report independently. And so it's really, you know, I feel a heavy responsibility to try and do as much of that as as possible from here. Mm. That attention you're getting from local police when you go somewhere or, or simply being followed, Do you feel physically unsafe or is it more still at the level of just we've got an eye on you? No, I don't generally feel physically unsafe. I, um, you know, think we're just annoying for them. And so usually I try to, if I am accosted or detained by the police, I do just try to leave and say, okay, I'm done. You know, I don't, they don't want to have to deal with the problem of me either. So if I can go, that's what I do. And so far that's worked well, knock on wood. But, you know, I have Chinese staff and I am concerned about them uh, and the situation that they are in. So that, the uh, my Chinese staff, but also the safety of people who I do talk to. I don't want to get anybody in danger or have anybody called in for questioning because they have spoken to me. What's your sense of China's view of the way the rest of the world is tackling COVID-19? And also, sort of related question, how much does China care about what the world is saying about it? China cares a lot about what the world is saying about it. I mean, they have this domestic constituency that they are obviously talking to, but they do want to be seen as a global power and a responsible one. And so, yeah, they care a lot. They are incensed by the kind of stuff that Donald Trump has been saying and this whole effort to like have it called Wuhan flu and international communiques and this kind of stuff. They, they care a lot. But it also plays into this much broader issue of this... Um, big fight this you know for supremacy between the United States and China that's covered everything from right. yes the trade war Huawei technology all of this stuff so China looks at everything as an American effort to contain China's rise you know the president here Xi Jinping wants to return China to what he sees as its glorious position at the you know, as a leader, at least in Asia, if not in the world. So they are in this kind of existential battle. Uh, What China has tried to do is try to kind of drive a wedge between countries. So, you know, when they were sending a lot of masks and PPE and ventilators to 
Italy, during the height of that outbreak, they were really trying to show, you know, we are helping Italy, the United States is not helping Italy and to drive a wedge between these allies, between Europe and, and the US. So nothing exists in isolation. This is not just a health issue for China. This is part of this bigger geopolitical battle that's going on. Right. Look, it's time for the plug. Last year, you published The Great Successor, <laughs> a book about the North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. It's pretty hard to know what happens in that country at the best of times, but if anyone knows how North Korea is handling the pandemic, it might be you. So do you know what's going on there? How are they doing? North Korea says that they have no cases of COVID at all, which is extremely difficult to believe given that they have this very long border with China, that almost all of their trade goes to or through China. There's a lot of activity on that border. But they did shut the border down in January. They were the first country to do so. And they're extremely paranoid anyway. You know, when Ebola broke out in West Africa in 2015, they closed the border for six months and that was like literally half a world away. So they did take a lot of action, but it's it's difficult to believe that they have no cases, as the North Koreans claim. But also, I think there has not been a massive outbreak there because we would have heard about it through defector networks and people on the border, like enough information would have seeped out. Um, again, North Korea, even more than China, has the ability to lock everybody at home and keep everything under control. So they do seem to have not had a huge outbreak. Sure. But the big question, I think, and the one that's been occupying a lot of people this year, is like, where is Kim Jong-un? You know, we've hardly seen anything of of him at all. And, you know, this could be social distancing. He's pretty good at distancing at the best of times. He could be trying to keep away. But also maybe he has had some kind of health problems. It doesn't take a medical doctor to see that he is not in good physical shape for a 36-year-old guy. But we just don't exactly know, uh, as with many things, what's going on inside North Korea. Hey, look, Anna, I saw that um, in your tweets, you said that after months in New Zealand and after spending 14 days in hotel quarantine, you were very keen to get out and pick up some decent local food so we'll let you go thanks so much for bringing us up to speed on china and on north korea yeah i'm gonna go and eat wuhan hot dry noodles they're called that's wuhan's famous food that's my lunch today so i'm very much looking forward to it thanks for having me on That's the Coronavirus NZ podcast for Thursday, the 9th of July. I'm Adam Dudding. He's Eugene Bingham. Thank you to Anna Fifield, Alex Liu, Catherine George, Sean Hartfield, and Carol Hirschfeld. You can find us on all the podcast platforms. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can email viruspod at stuff.co.nz. If you want to support Stuff's journalism financially, go to the link on the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz. See you back here next Thursday. Rā pere. Noho mai rā. Noho mai rā.